message series that we're going to be in throughout all of the summer or most of the summer and it's going to be um, it was on identity it's going to be on identity and of course what we're talking about is just the way that we define ourselves the way that we would answer the question if someone asked us who are you Uh, what would you say? How would you define yourself? That's how you find your identity or what it is that you're going to. And if you weren't here last week, I can't encourage you enough to uh, maybe go back and carve out a little bit of time to watch or listen to last week's message because um, it kind of set the tone for last week. I'm going to hit this and then you're going to see it fall. So I'm going to move it back a little bit. Um, but I can't, I can't, really can't encourage you enough if you weren't here to just carve out a little bit of time to, to watch that if you can because it was, a, it was an introduction to where we're going and I think there's a lot of things that are really crucial to help set the tone for it and things that could be really beneficial to you and so I hope that you'll make some time uh, to, to go back and watch last week if you weren't here. But one of the things that we talked about was just how, how we all usually tend to try to identify ourselves or define ourselves by either you know, what it is that we do, things that we do for a living or things that we're involved in, activities that we're involved in or through, you know, roles that we achieve, whether it's a captain of a a team or you're a CEO or you're a a doctor or whatever title it is that you earn. This is how you would answer the question, who are you? A lot of times if we're talking about our identity and we're we're defining ourselves, it, it goes back to what people say about us. Sometimes that's the good things that we latch on to that people have said about us and we we find meaning and significance in or it can be the negative things, the harmful things, the not so nice things that people say about us that stick with us and we roll around in our brains and those are the things that define us. That's who we think that we really are is what someone else has said about us and we do these things because this is how we see it happening out in the world. I mean, we, we, we long to have meaning and significance and fulfillment, and we look out there and we see how other people are defining themselves and finding an identity, what they're finding an identity in, and they're going to roles that they have or things that they you know, do or what it is that people have said. And so we try to do the same thing, but of course, when they don't really work, when we don't find that ultimate meaning and significance in defining ourselves that way, then we usually can latch on to any number of things. I mean, we'll start grabbing for, well, you know what? I'm, I'm an American citizen, right? That's who I am. And, and our life is defined by where we live. Or we latch on to a political party and we go, well, that's, I'm a Republican or I'm a, I'm a Democrat or whatever label it is. And you go, well, this is part of my identity. This is how I define myself, the very core of who I am as a person. Those things define me. For some of us, we go to our appearance or we may even uh, choose to define ourselves by sexuality. I mean, we start reaching for anything and, and everything that we can just find some kind of meaning or significance in because none of these things ever really seem to to work or if they they are working we find ourselves really trying to work hard to to try to maintain that identity that we think we have whatever it is that we are finding meaning and significance in or if it's not then we're constantly trying to just redefine ourselves right i'm gonna i'm gonna make me into a a new me right 
And so we start trying to reinvent ourselves and define ourselves by these different things or who it is that we're going to be one day in the future. And it just gets so frustrating because this was not meant to be how we define ourselves. We are not meant to find our identity in, in, in things that we earn or things that we achieve. We aren't meant to find our identity you know, based on how we're feeling or what thoughts that we're thinking at the time or what other people are thinking about us or saying about us. We're not meant to find our identity in the place that we live or a political party or in our sexuality or in our appearance or any of these things that we tend to try to find our identity in. We were meant to find and draw our identity from who we are are in Christ he is the one who defines who we are and listen it's it's not it's not something that we just switch that we find out in the world and we go okay well if it's if it's supposed to be from Jesus then now I'll try to earn my identity from him I'll try to perform well for him so he'll think more highly of me so that I can say this is who I am based on something that I've achieved in my performance for Jesus or something that I've earned from him. No, no, no. Scripture says that our identity, if it's to be found in Jesus, is not something we achieve or earn from him, but something that we receive from him. It's, it's a gift. It's a gift of grace. I asked you to turn to John chapter 1, and we talked a little bit about this idea of receiving our identity last week in the introduction, but I want you to see it today in the specific context of one particular aspect of our identity, what I would say the core of our identity really is, and that's what we're doing throughout the rest of the summer is we highlighted a number of different identity statements last week in the introduction, and today and every week after this, we're diving into specific aspects of our identity, and it'll come out as you see in these verses here where we're talking about receiving as well. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, John says, to all who did receive him. He's been talking about Jesus throughout the first 11 verses here. So he's, to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's your identity statement. You, when you receive him, become a child of God. Verse 13, he says, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. John says, to all who received Jesus, not to all who impressed Jesus, not to all who earned a certain status in the church, or who uh, served a certain number of times in a certain ministry, or who gave a certain amount of money to the church, or based on anything it is that you're doing, to those who received Jesus by believing in his name, by putting their faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior. And to those who received Jesus through faith, he says, you earn a new identity. Someone asks you who you are, you can say, I'm a child of God. That's who you are. You become a son of God or a daughter of God. You are his child. Let's take some ownership of that right now. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, I want you to just repeat after me. I am a child of God. Now say it like you mean it. I am a child of God. Yeah, and with a smile on your face. I mean, this is something that should make you happy, right? 
Your primary identity, the source of your identity is this new relationship that you have with God as your father and you as his kid. You're his child, you're his son, or you are his daughter. This is always who you were meant to be. But when you were eternally, or you were separated from him because of sin, it wasn't true about you. Jesus had to come. He had to uh, take your sin and my sin to the cross, and he had to pay the penalty for them and had to be raised from the dead so that he could have defeated the power of sin and death forever and offer forgiveness to you and the chance for the Holy Spirit to come dwell in you and unite to your dead spirit, bringing you back to life at the very core of your being and bringing you a new identity. I love the way that John says in verse 12, he says, he gave us the right, the right to become children of God. Underline the words, the, the right. When, when, when he says that you've been given the right to become a child of God, this confers status, right? In other words, you have the full authority to listen, the exalted title, the title above all, all titles except for those uh, of God alone, right? But you have the exalted title of child of God. I mean, the King of kings, the, the Lord of lords, the almighty, the, the great I am. These are his titles. And you're his child. You're his kid. It's confers status, the exalted status that you and I Receive that John is talking about here. But it's, it's not just a status. It's not just a name. In that uh, verse, in verse 12, go back. He says he gave us the right, look at the next part, to become children of God. In, in other words, become means there's been a change, right? You, you were not a child of God, but through receiving Jesus, now you've become a child of God. It's saying that there had to be a change that took place in order for you to become a child of God. And then, of course, he got around to how that change came about at the end of verse 13 when, when he said, born of God. That it's not someone so much being born of your, your, your parents or into any lineage of, of that concern. He said, being born of God. God. In 2 Peter 1, 4, Peter talks about how we, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, we become partakers of the divine nature. Like, like you share in the divine nature of God. To put it another way, you now have the DNA of God running through you. Do you realize that? Like if you've been born again, like we're not just talking about you saying that this is, this is some title that you have or some lofty term that just gets thrown around like, okay, I know I'm a child of God. No, no, like if you're, you're reborn with the DNA of God, that's how you're, you become his child. That's how you have the title is because your DNA has changed. Your spiritual DNA has changed and now you're literally part of his family. You've changed so much that you become his child, his son, or his daughter. And I guess my question for you this morning is, I mean, do you really believe that? 
Do you believe that you share the DNA of God? I'm not saying you are God. He's still God and he's still above. But in a union with him, Peter says you're a partaker. You're a participant of the divine nature. It's joined to you and united to you in such a spiritual way that you can't undo it and you've become something that you weren't before. What would change in your life if you really believed that you had the DNA of God primarily at the core of your being, that this is who you were? I think if you and I really believed that, I think it would change everything. I really do, and I think the problem is most of us don't really believe that. We, we, if, even if we grew up in the church, we've been a Christian for a while, we, we see the term, okay, yeah, I'm a child, we just don't really think much about it, but I'm hoping that you're, you're seeing this morning in just the way that he's talking about this in the fact that you've become, you're not just called his child, I mean, you've become his child, and now you have the exalted title of child of God because of who it is that you've become. John goes on in, in 1 John in a letter that he wrote further later on in the New Testament to describe a little bit more about the kind of child of God that you've become. And so if you look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, I want you to see what he says there. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And then look at what he calls you in verse two. Beloved, beloved, we are God's children now. You're not, you're not just a child of God. You are a beloved child of God. Beloved, of course, means dearly loved. You're, you're not just a child who sits over in the corner, right? I mean, you're, you're like his favorite. To be dearly loved means like you're, you're the favorite. I've, I've heard some of you tell stories of, of a, a dad or a grandfather or someone and how, how they would refer to you as, you know, oh man, you know, you're, you're my favorite. And you'd say that and you'd be like, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm his favorite. And then you grow up and then you start talking to your cousins or uh, brothers or sisters or whoever and they're like going, well, I'm, I'm, I'm dad's favorite. And you're like, no, 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 I'm dad's favorite. He told me I was his favorite, right? And you're like finding out that he told everyone that he was his favorite but he had this way of convincing you that you really were the way that he looked you in the eye the way that he said it the way that he treated you made you feel like you really were his favorite God has a way of looking at every single one of us and you going him going you're my favorite with a smile on his face like you're you're my beloved child of God this, this was the term that he even used for Jesus. Remember when Jesus got baptized? He, he, he went to uh, the Jordan River. Um, John the Baptist was there. He said, I need to be baptized. John the Baptist was like, you need to be baptizing me. He was like, no, it's right. This is the way. This is gonna start kind of my earthly ministry and get me going from here. And so um, John baptizes him. And when he baptizes Jesus, we're told in Luke chapter three that there was a voice from heaven that God uh, spoke, an audible voice that said, you you are my beloved son. That's how he refers to Jesus. You are my beloved son. And he goes on to say, with you I am what? Well, I'm pleased. I'm well pleased. And keep in mind, Jesus hadn't started his earthly ministry yet. He hadn't walked on water. He hadn't preached the Sermon on the Mount. He hadn't healed anyone. He hadn't done any miracles yet. Again, he hadn't even started his earthly ministry. What's he so pleased about? 
just that he's his kid, right? You, he calls out, you're my beloved, and I'm just, I'm so pleased that I get to be your dad. You know what I mean? I'm so pleased that you're my son. Like, I just get giddy thinking about how much I love you and how much I, I care about you. And this is the way that Scripture refers to you. I read you one verse. It's all over the place. Go, go read them. You are God's beloved child whom, in, in whom... He is well pleased, not because of your performance, not because of your behavior, not for the money that you've given, not for your service in the church, not for the way that you're parenting or the way that you're not parenting or any of those kinds of things, just because you're his kid. He's so pleased that he gets to call you son. He's so pleased that he gets to call you daughter. This is who you were meant to be. And if you and I like get that, Again, like really believe that we're the beloved son or daughter of God. I think that would change most of our lives, the way that we live our lives, the way that we interact with him. Uh, Brennan Manning is an author, and he wrote a book um, several years ago called Abba's Child. And, and in the book, uh, Brennan Manning tells the story about a guy named John Egan. And you don't know who John Egan is. Nobody knows who John Egan is, really, um, because he was just an ordinary guy. But he was an ordinary guy who Brennan Manning refers to as having been ravished by God's love for him just ravished by his love. And John wrote a, a, a diary, he kept a diary, and he wrote down a lot of his thoughts and things that went on, and of course that was passed on, and again, somehow Brendan Manning um, was aware of it and, and, and was able to read through some of it. And, and John begins to talk about this one time that he went on this spiritual retreat, and how he was just struggling and wrestling with his faith and God and his love for him and all of those kind of things. And they had like a spiritual mentor that they would kind of walk through and talk to throughout the retreat and the weekend while he was there. And, and he talks about this time where he met with his spiritual mentor and they were discussing some things and he was just kind of wrestling and frustrated and kind of moping through it or whatever. And all of a sudden his mentor just slams his hands on, on the counter. And I mean, just gets his attention and just slams his hands on, on the desk or the table that they were on and says, John, the heart of the matter is this, to make the Lord and his immense love for you constitutive of your personal worth. He says, you have to define yourself radically as one beloved by God because God's love for you and his choice of you constitute your worth. He said to accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. Accept it. One who's radically defining yourself as the beloved of God. Make that the most important thing in your life. Later on, John would go on to declare this in his diary and say that the basis of, of my personal worth is not my possessions, it's not my talents, not my esteem of others or my reputation, not kudos of appreciation from parents and kids, not applause and everyone telling me how important I am to the place. No, no, no. I stand anchored now in God before whom I stand naked. This God who tells me you are my son, my beloved son. Brennan Manning would go on and write after telling this story that living in awareness of our belovedness is the 
axis around which the Christian life revolves. It's the axis around which the Christian life revolves. He said, being the beloved is our identity, the core of our existence. It is not merely a lofty thought, an inspiring idea, or one name among many. It is the name by which God knows us in the way that he relates to us. The name by which God knows you is beloved son or beloved daughter. And it's the way that he relates to you. Do, you. do you understand that? Do you get that? He relates to you in your belovedness. In, in other words, let me contrast it. I think the way a lot of us view God or the view that we have had of God at one time, maybe even growing up in the church, is that again, God's up there, I'm down here, God's like some kind of military drill sergeant kind of a thing, and if he's a father, he's a stern disciplinarian kind of a father, and he's always looking over my shoulder to see if I'm getting it right. Like he's always nitpicking it and looking at it and say, yeah, that was good, but it wasn't perfect, right? You can do better. Now get up. Or he sees the place that I failed and said, you call that the way to live? You better get up and try again because that's not the way to do the Christian life. And you're always having to look over at him and saying, did, did, I, did I get it right this time, Father? Did I, did I get it right? Are you, um, are, you, are you proud of me now? Um, did, I, did I get it? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep trying. I'll try harder. I'll, I'll do better next time. I, I'm sorry. I'm really, I'm sorry. I, I really mean it. I'll say it. I'll, I'll cry. I'll get on my knees. I really, I don't know. Okay, this is the way that we live our lives. We think God is like that. And what he's saying is, no, the way that he relates to you is a father who just dearly loves you as you because you're in union with Jesus and he's re recreated you into someone holy and perfect. He's just madly in love with you. It would do us all a lot of good if we do what Bob told to do John and defined ourselves radically as one who is beloved by God. I mean, that's your homework. Define yourself as one radically, or define yourself radically as one beloved by God. One other passage I just want to highlight. Um, is, is a fee, uh, Romans 8, uh, 14 and, and 15. A lot we could dive into here, but let me just read it. It says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you. There's that received language again, right? John used it, Paul's using it. It's all about receiving. We tend to put so much effort on what it is that we're doing. The gospel is receiving, receiving, resting and allowing him to flow through you if there's activity. Not about your doing. <laughs> it's about receiving Jesus and allowing him to express those things through you. That's the gospel, right? So the spirit you received, he says, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought on by your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, you're my, you're, my, you're my daddy, right? This is, a, this is the way that we get to refer to, to God as our dad. We get to enjoy an intimate relationship with him. He's not a 
military drill sergeant looking down on you to see if you're always doing it right. He's looking at you as his child and you get to look back at him and say, Daddy. Daddy. And his book, Classic Christianity, Bob George has a, I thought a great example that helps kind of describe this and I'll close with the story that he writes here. It was back in the time of uh, when John F. Kennedy was president. He says, he, or he writes this in his book. He says, the small boy, not quite three years old, skipped down the imposing corridors. But armed servicemen, who are the best of the best, took no notice of the child who ran right past their assigned posts. He says, the boy passed several staff members on the way who likewise took little notice except for an occasional smile. Passing a secretary's desk, the little boy did not acknowledge her wave intent as he was on his goal. In the front door stood another armed sentry, but the guard made no movement to hinder the progress of the child who opened the door and went inside. With a grin, the boy just ran across the carpet of the Oval Office and climbed up into the lap of the most powerful man in the world. Influential cabinet members had to wait to continue their discussion as President John F. Kennedy and his son John John exchanged their good morning hugs and kisses. Bob writes, this contrast has always struck me. The most powerful man in the world and the little boy who could stroll past secretary, staff members, and security guards and jump into the arms of his father. But can you imagine someone objecting? Now you wait just a minute, young man. Don't you know who that man is? He is the president of the United States of America, the leader of the greatest nation on earth. You can't just waltz in here anytime you want, and you certainly can't be sitting in his lap. Who do you think you are? John John would have just looked up at his challenger with a surprised look, and then with a grin of total confidence on his face would have just said, but he's my daddy and I'm his kid, right? And, and listen, the same is true about you. John John knew who his dad was and he knew who he was as his dad's child. And listen, it, it, God is your father. If you're the child of God, you are a child of the most important being in all of the universe, the most powerful being in all of the universe. And he may be sitting in the Holy of Holies right now. And he may be dwelling and thinking about uh, hundreds of thousands of things that require his attention that he needs to deal with here on earth. He may be thinking about tons of things that are going on and how to hold the whole world together in his hands. Armies of angels may be flying around him and protecting him and crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But you, as a child of God, can come skipping into the room of the holy of holies and crawl up in the lap of God. And if any of those angels were to object and say, no, 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 wait, don't you know who that is? This is the most important, all-powerful being in the entire universe. He's got millions of important things to do. He's got thousands of people to tend to down here. Who do you think you are crawling in here? You cannot crawl into the lap of the living God and you can just look over at the angel and say, yeah, but he's my daddy and I am his child. 
and you can rest playfully in his arms. Amen?